You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcasts from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Today on the docket, we have a homegrown New England serial killer. I first heard about this case on the Criminal Podcast, where Phoebe Judge interviews New Hampshire reporter Kevin Flynn about his correspondence with the killer. Let's just say things got pretty weird for Kevin. I later discovered the fellow Maine-based podcast Murder She Told did an excellent three-part detailed account of this story. But I am frankly shocked that this case isn't more well-known, because I've never come across anything else like it. And there are still some big questions that remain unsolved involving the notorious Sheila Labar. And to take your listening experience of the show to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. Key players this week are your girl Sheila. And here in the visuals, you will notice that yes, she murdered multiple people, but her hair game was on point. How does she get those luscious, thick locks? Is it because her hair is full of secrets? We also see some photos of the men that fell victim to her torture and the cops that investigated her case and perhaps could have prevented at least one tragic death. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. So let's begin our story today at Walmart. It's always going down at the Walmart. Their slogan should be Walmart. We're just like Target, but you don't have to shower or change out of your jammies to shop for great deals. So yes, this story begins at a Walmart. The Epping, New Hampshire location circa 2008 to be exact, where Sheila Labar is making quite a scene. She's behaving erratically and her younger male companion isn't looking very well. A concerned employee calls the cops and they soon arrive where they find Sheila Labar causing a commotion. The local Epping, New Hampshire officers, Sean Gallagher and Richard Cody, are no stranger to Sheila and her drama. They have interacted with her at least a dozen times over the years, intervening on domestic disputes involving Sheila's many partners. And often it's Sheila's current boyfriend that's calling the cops on her. In fact, they were just at her country farmhouse estate last week performing a wellness check on her most recent boyfriend, Kenneth County. Kenneth's mother made the call for the wellness check after she hadn't heard from her son. He had developmental disabilities and a, quote, childlike trust with people. She was worried he was being taken advantage of by this new romantic partner he met through a telephone dating service called Telemates, which prides itself as being, quote, the cure to feeling single and alone. Wasn't that what that Drake song, Hotline Bling, was about? Seeking eternal love on telemates? Yo, I don't know, because I never pay attention to his lyrics because those beats are so dope. So getting back to Kenneth, he was 24 at the time he started dating the 50-year-old Sheila Labar. When the cops checked on Kenneth County last week at Sheila's farmhouse, Sheila was hostile and reluctant with them at first, but eventually let them in to see Kenneth. 
It was a weird scene. He had a shirt off and was wearing some old jeans, but he looked like his normal self from what they could tell. But now, a week later at the Walmart, his complexion is gray, there are cuts and bruises all over Kenneth, and his hand is swollen and wrapped in bandages. But most disturbingly, he was confined to a wheelchair. Sheila chalked up his injuries to a car accident and claimed the wheelchair was a, quote, joke. Wow, cool joke, Sheila. Not. Save the prop comedy for Carrot Top. Because I'm not amused, and neither are the cops. They ask Kenneth if he's okay, but before he has the chance to respond, Sheila shouts, Don't answer them. She then threatens to sue the officers and the Walmart employees for harassing her. So the cops let her go, figuring if Kenneth County were in real danger, he would speak up. The officers also ignored the two five-gallon yellow containers of diesel in Sheila's shopping cart. More on that later. Actually, before we go further with anything else, let's go back and explore the very eventful romantic history of Sheila Labar. We start in Alabama in the early 80s. First, Sheila marries John Baxter. And it was a fairy tale wedding, but not the way you might think. Sheila was 23, and John was only 19 at the time. He had a child from a previous relationship, and he was hopeful that Sheila would be a stable mother figure for his daughter, Wendy. His hopes were quickly dashed when he discovered that Sheila had been locking Wendy in a closet all day and threatened to beat her and break all of her toys if she came out. But don't worry, y'all. She gave Wendy a pot to use as a toilet. And Sheila also casually mentioned to Wendy that if she ever told her father about this, she would kill them both. Wow. Congratulations, Sheila. You have achieved official Brothers Grimm fairy tale wicked stepmother status. John left Sheila after just six weeks of marriage. Whatever. There are plenty of fish sticks in the frozen seafood aisle. And Sheila quickly found a new man she wanted to hook. His name was Ronnie Jennings. But he wasn't an easy one to catch. Sheila met Ronnie when she was working at the local burger joint. He was tall and handsome and loved the ladies. Sheila was obsessed. She wanted Ronnie Jennings all to herself. So she uses her very (coughs) persuasive charm to convince him to marry her. But this marriage quickly went bad. Kind of like that fish stick that fell between your couch cushions. Sheila had wild mood swings and would fly off the handle at Ronnie. He stopped feeling safe around Sheila, lying awake at night, worried she would harm him. I don't know why he was being so dramatic. I mean, he only caught Sheila that one time, standing over him with a sharp pair of scissors as he slept. It's like, relax, Ronnie, take a quaalude. So needless to say, there was some distance forming between Ronnie and Sheila. Whatever. Sheila would just find attention somewhere else, like her wealthy new boss, Sam Billiams. He's the heir to a big family-owned construction company. And oh, he's also married. Uh, Old Big Papa Billiams finds out about the affair and puts a stop to it by firing Sheila. This puts Sheila into a tailspin. She confronts husband Ronnie at his restaurant job, accusing him of cheating, and then proceeds to ingest an entire bottle of pills in front of him and presumably the other restaurant staff 
Then she takes off in her car and abruptly crashes. When paramedics find Sheila, she is unresponsive. They pump her stomach and they are able to save her life, but she is in a coma for eight days. Then she is transferred to a psychiatric hospital. There are some things that happened during Sheila's stint at the treatment facility that I actually think made everything worse for her mental health. Ugh, more on that later too. She's out after 30 days and Ronnie is out of the marriage. Oh well, on to the next one. Sheila peruses the personal ads in the newspaper and responds to a 60-year-old widower named Wilford Labar. His ad read, quote, Doctor, widower, looking for someone not too tall. Sheila responded with a topless photo. Wilford was hooked. They had a long-distance relationship for a few months, and then Wilford Labar invited Sheila to move in with him at his grand farmhouse estate in Epping, New Hampshire. Sheila accepted, and the town of Epping would never be the same. Insert dramatic pause. Things start out promising. Wilford is enamored by Sheila's beauty, her intelligence, and southern charm. He brings her in on his chiropractic business where she would collect unpaid bills. He even helps her to pursue her dream of becoming a country singer. But that never pans out. And just like how country music started off awesome and then got really, really bad in the early 2000s, Sheila and Wilford's relationship also turned real nasty. Wilford's daughter later recounts that her father's personality changed dramatically not long after Sheila moved in. Wilford stopped being his outgoing, happy self and started to become more fearful and closed off. Wilford even called the police a few times after Sheila threatened to kill him and his horses. Despite family and friends urging Wilford to quit horsing around with his crazy broad, he stays with her for the rest of his life and she takes over everything. Sheila takes his last name and the farm, the business, and multiple properties. And then Wilfred Labar dies of heart failure at age 74. Although family would later claim there was foul play. Even though Sheila and Wilford never married, she was the sole beneficiary to his multi-million dollar estate. His children are shocked and horrified. Kind of like the first time I heard that country song, Honky Tonk, Badonka Donk. Ugh, vile. Oh yeah, and I forgot to mention that six years before Wilfred Labar died, Sheila, his common-law wife, also started seeing one of his chiropractic patients, a man named Wayne Enos. Wayne was originally from Jamaica and settled in the New England area working seasonal jobs. Wayne and Sheila start dating in 1994, and then they get married in 1995. Wilford Labar is surprisingly cool with all of this. He maintains a quasi-romantic relationship with Sheila and opens his home to her new husband, Wayne. They were one big happy family. Oh, until Sheila started chasing Wayne Enos around the property with a handgun if he crossed her. Did I forget to mention that Sheila loved guns? She also loved dropping hints to her new husband, Wayne, that he should kill Wilford so they can inherit the farm. This was completely out of the question for Wayne. He had formed a close friendship with Wilford Labar. It was probably after all those nights Sheila kicked them both out of the house and made them sleep in the barn. 
after a few more outlandish incidents, including walking in on Sheila banging another guy, Wayne Enos files for divorce. The other guy in that scene was a man named James Brackett. And let's just say he was lucky to make it out of Sheila's trap alive. He survived knife attacks, a grill brush to the face, guns pointed at his head, being chased with an axe, and that time he was slashed with scissors. All of this happened on different occasions. He finally was able to escape, hitchhiking through a blizzard to find safety at a homeless shelter. James later recalled that Sheila would fly into these bizarre fits of rages, accusing him of being a pedophile and abusing the farm animals. He always denied these horrible accusations. And maybe that is why he made it out alive. Michael Deloge, on the other hand, wasn't so lucky. He was a heavy drinker and drug user down on his luck. Sheila, looking for some help on her farm, picked him up at the local homeless shelter one day to do farm work. Their relationship turned romantic and then abusive. A neighbor recalled seeing Sheila beating Michael with a hardwood rod. Michael's mother and other neighbors slash co-workers did their best to keep tabs on him, but come July 2005, Michael had disappeared from the farm. Sheila claimed he took off. Anywho's old time for Sheila to find herself a new man. She was having a hard time, too. Answering the door in lingerie to delivery drivers wasn't landing her any dates. But then she saw an ad for Telemates and gave the telephone dating service a try. That's when she connected with Kenneth County, the man who was last seen being pushed by Sheila in a wheelchair at the Walmart. A few weeks after the Walmart incident, Kenneth County's mother gets a strange call from Sheila Labar. Sheila claimed that Kenneth took off from the farm and she hadn't seen him in a few days, so anyways, bye. Kenneth's mom is panicked. Her son, as you remember, is developmentally disabled and he can't survive on his own. She immediately speed dials the Epping, New Hampshire officers. They are officially annoyed with this overdramatic mother and they don't bother to go over to the farmhouse. Instead, Officer Sean Gallagher calls Sheila and leaves a voicemail. A few days later, Sheila returns the call and leaves a strange, terrifying recording. First, Sheila repeats the story that Kenneth left on his own and she hasn't seen him around. And then she plays a weird tape recording over the phone. Officer Gallagher could hear Sheila's voice screaming that she was a justice of the peace. She was interrogating someone, asking disturbing, incriminating questions. You're a rapist, aren't you? Are you a pedophile? Didn't you hurt those animals? Then he heard another muffled voice on the recording. A terrified-sounding Kenneth County answers yes to all of Sheila's accusations. Officer Sean then heard what sounded like gagging. Sheila's tone changes to a bizarre sing-song cadence, saying, oh, Kenneth is now pretending he's throwing up and he's faking that he's fainting. Then she starts crying with this extreme guttural wail and then hangs up the phone. Officer Sean Gallagher and Richard Cody decide they should probably check on things over at the Labar house. They arrive just as the sun is setting. The farm is a beautiful scene, except for an unsightly burnt mattress leaning against a tree. Actually, there are quite a few burn piles around the property. 
They get a closer look at one and notice a charred knife handle with a melted blade. And even more disturbing, a bone with bits of flesh still attached. They find Sheila around the fence and confront her about the bone. She brushes it off. It's a country farm after all, and it probably came from one of the animals. When pressed further, she tells the officers that the bone came from, quote, either a rabbit or a pedophile. She then tells them to leave and not to come back without a warrant. They are forced to comply, I guess, and Sheila flees the coop in her big silver Mercedes with a big stack of cash. So now Sheila is MIA on the run, but officers do have a warrant to conduct a thorough search of her property. They find the partial remains of Kenneth County in a charred Walmart bag. And after further investigation, they determined he had been stabbed to death and then his body was burned. They also find another bone, a spent shell casing, and the birth certificate of Michael Deloge in the septic tank. They also find three human male toes on the property, and these toes do not match Kenneth or Michael's DNA. To this day, the identity of the third person Sheila probably killed is still unknown. Ugh, why you gotta take it to that level, Sheila? You see, this is why ladies' night is so important. We get to go out, complain about our romantic partners, blow off some steam, and avoid instead beating your significant other with a hardwood rod. You know, small healthy habits really make a difference, y'all. But Sheila couldn't function that way. I don't think she ever had a chance at a normal healthy life because of her childhood. I've been putting this off, but it's time we dive into the early days of Sheila Labar. She was born with the name Sheila K. Bailey in Alabama in the late 1950s. She grew up in a Southern Baptist home, the youngest of five siblings, and they corroborate what happens next. Her father was an angry drunk, and he became worse and worse over the years, escalating his violence, turning over heavy furniture and appliances in fits of rage, throwing random objects around the house at his children and wife, leaving them with physical and emotional scars. He also molested Sheila and her sister, and he would even bring over other men to partake in the sexual abuse. And to make it all worse, later on as an adult, when Sheila was admitted to the mental health facility after ingesting the bottle of pills and crashing her car, she told her sister that an orderly at the hospital had been assaulting her, trying to rape her. This was the hand that Sheila was dealt. It's absolutely not an excuse to harm innocent people, but it does help explain her descent into madness and why she played her cards the way that she did. And speaking of Sheila, she's not ready to fold just yet. She's got one final hand to play. While on the run, she dyes her hair red and meets a new fella in Dorchester, Mass. Go Pats! She was, quote, stranded on the side of the road and is rescued by a guy named Stephen Martello. Sheila seduces Stephen and then, post-coitus, lets slip that she's a, quote, angel sent from heaven to kill pedophiles. Stephen discreetly excuses himself and books it back to his apartment, where he catches Sheila on the local news. She is wanted for the murder of at least two men. Stephen rushes to the police station and tells the authorities, I think I just encountered Sheila Labar, except now she's a redhead. 
redheaded Sheila works her way over to Roxbury, Mass. She meets another guy named Kenneth Washington and seduces him. They hang out for a few days and then plan to meet up later for a lunch date at the Taco Bell in Revia, Mass. But before heading over to their date, Kenneth also spots Sheila on the news and calls the authorities. Sheila is arrested at the Revia Taco Bell. That's right. Someone else had a worse day at the Taco Bell than the guy assigned to clean the bathrooms. Taco Bell, where you can still get gas for a buck eighty-nine. No, no, stop that. We do not do toilet humor on this show. But speaking of shows, let's go to Sheila's trial. Her lawyers argue an insanity defense, obvi. They argue that Sheila suffered from schizoaffective disorder and delusional disorder brought on by the traumatic abuse she suffered as a child. Therefore, she was not of sound mind when she committed these acts of violence. But then Sheila's former lovers took the stand to testify against her. All the dirty laundry gets aired out in front of the jury. They even get to tour Sheila's farmhouse. After taking in all of the evidence, including some wild journal entries and drawings made by Sheila, they reject her not guilty plea by reason of insanity and find her guilty of murder. She is sentenced to life in prison without parole. But her story doesn't end there. She begins exchanging letters with a New Hampshire TV news reporter named Kevin Flynn. Flynn is a kind, trusting person who is going through a hard time in his personal life. He gets close with Sheila through the letters and is even granted permission to visit her in prison. Kevin sets his sights on writing a tell-all book about the case. And maybe Sheila will give him an exclusive account. But Sheila instead starts to cross the line with her letters and they become kind of R-rated. Kevin loses his TV news station job and his marriage ends. But he ends up writing a hell of a book about the case and now co-hosts the Crime Writers On podcast with his new wife, Rebecca Lavoie. So at least his story has a happy ending. And like I mentioned before, fellow native Mainer Kristen Seavey does an in-depth three-part series about Sheila Labar on her podcast, Murder She Told. You can hear more about Kevin Flynn and his book, Wicked Intentions, on the criminal podcast episode titled Dear Sheila. Because if you're like me, you're not going to be able to get enough of this story. And I usually don't seek out content about serial killers for a few reasons. I mean, I had nightmares after reading the late Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I could only get through that because her writing was so good. Otherwise, most of the time I find it gross how serial killers become elevated as evil geniuses, when in most cases they were simply benefiting from bungled investigations. But there's something about female serial killers that feel different, especially Sheila. What would her life have looked like if she got help at that mental health facility instead of more abuse? What if the cops intervened at the Walmart that night? So many what ifs. I am also left wondering about the concept of an insanity defense. Someone help me out here. Sheila Labar is diagnosed with a legit mental illness and her insanity plea is rejected. But Dan White successfully argues the Twinkie defense citing diminished capacity when he shot Harvey Milk. Make it make sense, please. But perhaps my biggest question above all else, how do we find love in this crazy world? 
After hearing the story of Sheila Labar, I think we need to be very wary of meeting people through dating services like Telemates, Personal Ads, et al. Maybe we're better off meeting someone that wholesome, old-fashioned way, IRL, at the bar. Or as the French say, le bar. Woo, Sheila, that was a wild ride. Have you ever heard of Sheila Labar before? Are you as surprised as me that she hasn't been covered by a million podcasts, documentaries, and like even a scripted limited series starring Catherine Zeta-Jones? Tell me what you think about Sheila. You can email me directly at Angela at thetruecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we are back. Before we start the ranking, a quick update. I am still listening to the retrievals, but yo, the whiplash. I finished episode three, and now I lost a lot of my sympathy for the nurse again. I'm still on board, but that show is really messing with my head. So without further ado, let's get down to business, and here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have the band teacher. Here's a rundown from the show. He says it was consensual sex. She says it was rape. He was her music teacher. She was a teen. And it wasn't just once with one girl. He had sex with students in closets, classrooms, and cars. The band teacher begins with one victim's search for justice, but turns into a full investigation. Uh, unlike most shows on my ranking where I can't wait to listen as soon as a new episode drops, this one I have to be in the right mood to make it through a single episode because the subject matter is so heavy. But that being said, I found this show to be so powerful. And I'm not the only one. If you read the comments and see the community forming around this show, you can see how much this universal story means to survivors of abuse. The band teacher is making a meaningful impact. At the number two spot, we have Stephenville. Here's a synopsis. From the moment Susan Woods was found dead at home in the summer of 1987, everyone in Stephenville, Texas, including the police, was certain she'd been killed by her estranged husband. That left the real culprit free to prey on others. Best-selling author Brian Burrow returns to his small-town Texas roots to explore a murder case that went cold for nearly two decades. Only now, after discovering a voice from beyond the grave, can the whole story finally be told. This podcast explores a lot of interesting theories. I don't know if we're going to get anywhere, but I am enjoying this show for what it is. Great storytelling. 
It reminds me a little of that show S-Town and its sense of place and fascinating characters. So don't go into this expecting to get all of the answers and you will be thoroughly entertained with Stephenville. At the number one spot, we have The Girlfriends. Here's a synopsis. It's 1995, and Carol Fisher is a high-flying divorcee looking for love in Las Vegas. It's slim pickings in the medical community she works in. But then Bob comes to town. Bob Bierenbaum is a plastic surgeon who flies planes and speaks several languages. Her mother loves that he's Jewish, but there's something off about him. He's perfect on paper, but he's quick to anger and never talks about his ex-wife who, it turns out, is missing and presumed dead. After Carol and Bob break up, she tells her friend Mindy all about Bob's wife and his bizarre behavior. You see, Mindy dated Bob, too. In fact, a lot of women in Vegas dated Bob, and they all have their own strange stories to tell. In this riveting nine-part series, Carol Fisher uncovers the truth of Gail Katz's death, the systems that failed her, and all the girlfriends that brought her to justice. Yes, this is exactly what I need right now. This show is a juicy mystery filled with gossip and snarky comments about Bob. The shade thrown by Carol's mother when Bob biffed cooking the lobster dinner. Glorious. Come to think of it, there's a lot of fabulous descriptions of food in this show. So yeah, I'm sold. I like what I like and I'm a total sucker for this one. So join me tuning into The Girlfriends so we can have our own gab sesh over noodles. Now for my miss of the week. We have The King Road Killings. Here's a summary from the show page. When four University of Idaho students were stabbed to death in their off-campus house on King Road, the media descended on the tiny town of Moscow, Idaho. ABC News correspondent Kana Whitworth brings listeners behind the scenes as she investigates the savage murders that captivated and horrified the nation in the winter of 2022. Bah, season one of the show has ended. I listen to every episode waiting for some juicy morsel of information from this, quote, exclusive reporting. But nada, bupkis, zilch. I hate listening to this show. But at the same time, I couldn't stop. What does that mean? Where do I go from here? This show is like that song, Honky Tonk Badonkadonk. I know it's bad, but I still kind of like dancing to it. Host Kana Whitworth is going to come back to report on the trial on season two. And I secretly can't wait to hate listen to another round. So for now, I'm sending King Road Killing season one down my podcast playlist of secret shame. Shh, don't tell anyone. Find out next week if the girlfriends will remain in the number one spot as the series continues or if a new show will swoop in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show is in your secret podcast playlist of shame. You know, the one that you know is bad, but you still love tuning in. Don't worry, I have big voluminous hair. Your secret is safe with me. Come on back next week. I'll meet you here to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix.
that's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding. Thank you.